It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. You can also follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. My name's Kate Wenigal and today I'm joined by my co-host Natalie Bucknell and Michael Steindl. G'day Kay, g'day Nat and g'day listeners. Hello Kay. Today, we're going to be talking to Simon Holmes Accord, who will give us an optimistic look at the state of renewables in Australia. Simon is a senior advisor in the Energy Transition Hub at Melbourne University and sits on the advisory board at the Melbourne Energy Institute. Welcome, Simon. Thanks for joining us. Pleased to be joining you. Simon, you're well known for your work as founding chair to help get the Hepburn Wind Farm off the ground in 2011. And... (laughs) I thought it was really cute. The two wind turbines are whimsically called Gusto and Gale. (laughs) Can you tell us where most of your time is spent nowadays? Sure. I've uh, recently joined Melbourne University's uh, Energy Transition Hub, which is a new initiative uh, that is bringing together research groups in Australia and Germany to study the economic, technical, social, political aspects of the energy transition. Um, That that group, the the, um, Transition Hub, will be launched uh, later this year, but a, but a range of projects are already underway. Um, and uh, I'm spending a lot of time researching uh, the energy transition at the moment and um, yeah, prolifically tweeting, which I'm re- you know, really enjoying uh, engaging with a wide range of uh, experts in energy transition around the world. You recently did an excellent presentation to Lighter Footprints that I got to see and started off by saying that carbon emissions have stabilised at about 32 gigatons. That's per year... Um, worldwide haven't they increased each year over the last three years or well we after after decades i mean really since the industrial revolution uh carbon emissions have increased year upon year then we had three amazing years 2014 15 and 16 where we had a stabilization for the first time uh except for uh, major world recessions we and we we had a leveling off of uh of, of carbon emissions last year we had a slight increase about two percent a significant amount of that is put down to a growth spurt in China at the end of last last year. But uh, yeah, all eyes are on emissions this year to see whether that little increase was an anomaly and whether we're going to go back to the um, more like the 32, I think we were at the previous three years. So um, disappointing news that we saw an increase this year, but let's hope it's just an anomaly. Okay. And you also noted that worldwide fossil fuel power generation is decelerating, that three quarters of the new additions are renewables. Is that a uniform trend across the world, or are there some countries that are notable laggards? There, uh, for a long time, for, for most of the last decade, this discussion would have been quite different. We would have said uh, everything uh, is, well, mo- you know, in most countries, moving in the right direction, but India and China, China are holding us back by going in the complete opposite direction. The really exciting thing that's happened over the last couple of years is is how much the coal boom, I guess, in in China and India. It's basically over uh, in those mm-hmm. countries. China's now past peak coal. 
um, in, in, in the slide deck we were talking about. Uh, there's a beautiful chart showing China um, peaking, peaking emissions about three years ago uh, from coal. Uh, and uh, and India, which went through a massive coal expansion in the beginning of this decade, new projects have ground to a halt there. And in both countries, the utilisation of their coal plant are at um, very low levels, 47%, I believe, in, in India and about and under, under 60% in China. And listeners, we will give you a, a link to these slides and the presentation later at the end. So you, you talk about um, coal be- reducing in India... Now, obviously, um, Australia still has a problem with coal and seems to be one of the main producers and users of coal, I'd imagine, compared to the worldwide use. Would that be correct? Well, I should, should correct to say that while, while we're seeing a reduction of coal in, in China, what we're seeing in India is just a slowing down. So, ah, okay. so uh, I, I expect that they will, uh, they're, they're not quite at peak coal yet for, for India, but um, China's consumption of coal is four times India. So the, the big news is coming oh. off in, coming off in, uh, in China. All oh, right. So you said, I think, that there's a 62% drop in construction starts and only 261 plants are under construction worldwide for coal. Is that yeah, and that's 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 a, that, that's less than half of what we would have seen about four or five years ago. Significantly due to the the boom that that, that was in both India and China. There's a, a report that's put out every year by Greenpeace, the Sierra Club, and and End Coal called the Boom and Bust Report. Last last January's report was uh, was was quite a turning point. Certainly a big theme of of, of the talk I gave for for lighter footprints the other day is the reasons I'm an optimist. Uh, and that report for me was quite a turning point where it, it showed that the pipeline of new projects is shrinking dramatically. Pro- projects that sit in the announced state, two-thirds of them went to the cancelled state over a couple of years' time. Mm-hmm. And the pipeline of projects under construction is shrinking dramatically. The new number of new projects entering that pipeline is, cru- is slowed to a crawl. Well, and so that's called the boom and bust report. And the 2018 report is due out in, within a couple of weeks from now. Very much looking forward to seeing what's happened. And I've seen some of the some of the early release numbers for that. And uh, yeah, there's some continuing encouraging signs. And who produces that report? Uh, it's a group called End Coal, and they, End Coal. Uh, amazingly, they they track every coal unit in the world. They've got representatives in ev- in every country tracking every project that's in operation, but also every project that's been announced, mm. uh, that's been permitted, that's under construction. The database is of such high quality that Bloomberg and uh, Platts, which is a large engineering consultancy, are all starting to draw on this report as the official, uh, I guess, uh, state of the coal sector globally. Very I impressive. I wonder if they're tracking the coal that's taken into our parliament and converted into hot air. <laughs> um, Simon, renewable costs, and again, we're talking worldwide, they're plummeting with solar coming down in 2013, it was around 165 US per megawatt hour. There's now tenders that are showing it less than, sorry, already completed for less than $65 per megawatt hour, and signed tenders for delivery by 2020 of less than $30 a megawatt hour. On top of that, a Renew Economy article just last week uh, quoted a professor in um, New South Wales who's saying he is expecting less than $10. Um, contracts by 2020. Absolutely massive decrease in such a short period of time. Where and when will it stop? 
It's a really good question. I'm amazed and so encouraged by these falls. When I was, so uh, that's getting cheaper than wind. It's absolutely. So in, in the new con, the, the prices you you just quoted are for um, the reverse auction results around the world uh, for delivery in 2020. Down, down those those values, there solar is now crossed under wind. And when I first started talking about Hepburn Wind, which was um, a decade ago, solar was up around $200 um, a megawatt hour. Mm-hmm. And, and to have it down, starting to poke towards $20, uh, it's phenomenal. And wind, again, wind was around $100, $120. And we're now, in, in Australia, we've seen it contracted recently at 52 There's still a way to go. Where does it, where does it go? Well, the... the uh, Ultimately, it's the, the cost of materials uh, in, in, in pretty much every in every industry. Uh, once things get to a high volume, the the major you know, the, the major cost is the cost of materials. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for uh, for solar, there's there's still some way to come down uh, in that. But th- most of the savings we've we've had in these areas in recent years have been about the efficiency of the supply chain that comes through great volume, uh, and uh, and also the. Uh, efficiency of the, uh, or, or the, the, I guess the finance, the financeability of projects, the 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 risk uh, for investing in these projects has come down. The um, the technologies are no longer considered novel or alternative uh, by the banks, so they can look at a uh, at a solar project and very quickly move through due diligence and give it a very competitive cost of capital, uh, mm. and and that that can't be um, overstated. I think how significant the uh, the, fi- the the um, the impact of the finance community has had on bringing renewables down the cost curve. And, and just for listeners who aren't used to buying in megawatt hours, remember to divide this by a thousand to get the the price you're paying at home. So fifty dollars a megawatt hour is five cents per kilowatt hour, and you're probably used to paying twenty twenty five cents per kilowatt hour. Um, and when we get to ten dollars a megawatt hour, that's one cent per kilowatt hour for the supply cost. Now, still got to add all your network charges and so on, but it's Absolutely amazing. Um, some of the International Energy Agency projections show that renewables will exceed coal production by 2025, and they estimate that coal will be producing 10,000 terawatt hours in 2022, and solar is already producing 7,000 terawatt hours currently. Um, could coal plants be retired earlier than projected, and particularly when we keep in mind that the IEA are so notorious for always getting it wrong in favour of fossil fuels. Every year they come out with their predictions and they say fossil fuels this, renewables that, and it's always way less fossil fuels, way more renewables than they project. Yeah, for the the IEA, I uh, I love their data sources. I I am um, you know I, I download a lot of their data and read read a lot of their reports. Um, I I see that. They're fantastic resource for looking in the rearview mirror, <laughs> but but uh, they're not a great windscreen. Um, they're just um, there's some fantastic charts that plot their predictions of where solar is going to go, and they've got it wrong every year for 15 years, mm. uh, and wildly wrong. So, IEA and and uh, the US EIA, just to keep it confusing, mm. um, uh, all give great. You're great data for for looking backwards, but yeah, they're not not a great place for looking forwards. So, Simon, what's next? What? How do we build on this momentum? Well, uh, what what I'm um, what I'm really encouraged by is is ten years ago, we would sit down and say we've we've got to do this transi- transition, and here are all the reasons why we have to do it. And yes, it's going to you know it's a bit more expensive, or in, you know. In Solar's case, it was quite a bit more expensive than 
than coal at the time. Uh, and uh, so he had to talk about all the other reasons. You know, the, 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 sure, we had to do it for um, – uh, we'd, we'd talk about finances, the financial reasons you want to do it in, for the future. Uh, we'd talk about the economic and social um, – or the, the, the uh, environmental and social reasons now. So he had to build quite a complex case to try to get projects over the line. What I'm very encouraged by is how, uh, how now we can, we can get by making just the economic argument. Now, I, it, it's sad that uh, we have to reduce everything uh, down, to, down to money, but once we do and we win the financial argument, it becomes so much easier. Uh, so, for example, the, the plan um, uh, in, in South Australia to in the virtual power plant, 250 megawatts of solar and batteries – uh, will so on fifty thousand rooftops that uh, that plan uh, the state government is is actually only putting in um, two million dollar grant to get the project off the ground and a thirty million dollar loan uh, it's all up going to be an eight hundred million dollar project and that money will come from the private sector now why is the private sector going to invest to make that happen because it makes economic sense right now to do it so we're going to get a, a huge, in, incredibly um, flexible power plant in South Australia, and it'll be built uh, by private capital almost entirely. Uh, it will deliver benefits to the households uh, it's on. Uh, now, it takes leadership for a state government to put the deal together to guarantee uh, access to market and encourage it on um, along. So I think we've, we want to see more thinking like that around the country. But what's fantastic is that the, the, the capital's there to make this transition happening, and it's, it's only accelerating. It's, it's, it's really heartening to see. Mm-hmm. If you've just joined us, we're talking to Simon Holmes-Accourt about the optimistic state of renewables in Australia. So, Simon, there's often an argument by climate deniers or, or just people with head in their sand that Australia contributes only 1.2% of global emissions. So why do we need to do so much? So what do you say to that? Yeah, I've, uh, f- when I hear that, I um, uh, for me, that, that's um, uh, a morally bankrupt argument. Um, but I, um, uh, I want to try to move past that out- outrage um, and... Uh, I've uh, again. I've got a. I've got a chart that I put up um, that shows uh, if if we look, we've, we've got some major emitters in the world. So China's about thirty percent of emissions. The US uh, is about half that. Um, India about half that. So the, you know, the top um, six emitters: China, US, India, Russia, Japan, Germany make up about sixty percent of global emissions. So the question is often put: Well, if you know, um, if why should Australia do anything when we're so small when these guys, um, these other countries are, are emitting so much? Well, if we look at all the other countries in the world, if we look at all, all other emitters, and, uh, and Australia's in that sort of uh, under 2% club, all, all the countries that emit under 2%, we're right near the top of that list. And so to, emitting about as much as China, do you think? Uh, now, in that under 2% club, yeah. um, we're emitting 40%, 40%, which, 40% oh, which is more than China. Mm-hmm. So we, we, are, uh, we are right at the lead of the smaller nations. Uh, and if we say we're not going to do anything, why would anyone smaller than us – well, they would all have the same okay. argument. Mm-hmm. Perhaps Germany would have the same argument too, which is about n- nearly twice our emissions. If we all took that attitude, um, well, as, as I said before, we, 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 the under two percent club emits more than China, and as it happens, uh, that you know, the argument 
Um, we, we now see that China is not doing nothing. Um, maybe it looked like that five, six years ago. But an amazing, amazing story from um, from China. Last year they installed seven solar panels a second. Um, <laughs> if you can just That's imagine. That's phenomenal, isn't it? Around the clock. A, around the clock. <laughs> uh, and, and uh, yeah, this, this year should be a bumper year too. So there's, there's absolutely no risk that uh, we're even – uh, you know, that, that we're leading the pack uh, anymore. Um, you know, we've got you know, con- countries like China and, and certainly uh, moves in India uh, towards very high uh, renewables uptake that um, it's no longer an excuse for us. Now, I do like the example you gave of your typical shire might be contributing 0.5%, say, of rubbish to the, of the state's total, but... How would you feel if your council stopped collecting your rubbish? Yeah, what's what's the point of collecting rubbish when we're only one percent of the households in Victoria? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we we do still take the lead though on a per capita basis of emissions, yeah. don't we? <laughs> oh, we, we we absolutely do on on a per capita emissions. We we um yeah we're we're right at the at, at the head or at least of of significant significant uh, economies. Um, one thing though, we we, we we do like to talk about we do like to. Um, uh, talk about how backward we are in because I think we re- we reflect the politics onto um, we, we put undue uh, attention onto the politics. But um, uh, Australia is right at the lead of household adoption of solar. I'm mm. sure you've talked about this on on your show before. Um, not only we're at the lead, but it's accelerating. And when I look at uh, the costs of putting solar on your roof in the US, it's about twice what it costs here, and that's because we are so efficient at it. We've been doing it. Um, month in, month out, with hardly any interruption, hardly any political interference, the industry has just got on with it and has become very efficient so that, as, as many of you listeners will know, you can now get a quote for solar without someone even coming to visit your house. Um, mm. In the US, someone has to crawl up on your roof and you know, um, come around and give you a quote, uh, and by the time you've gone through all that process, uh, it costs about double in the US to install solar as it does in Australia. That's so, amazing, isn't so it? So flowing straight on from that... Um, one of the reasons Australia has had such a high adoption rate is because it pays off because our electricity prices are relatively high. Um, you've shown some figures that says in recent years that the cost increases have been 40% network, 26% retail, 17% energy and 16% environmental. So the story behind the biggest one, the 40%, is network gold plating. Many people know that story. But can you explain the others in particular why retail has increased 26%? So in most states, we've, we've moved to, uh, to deregulate, to privatise uh, retail. So we've, um, we've gone from a, uh, your government-owned retailer. Most states, they're, they're, they're some, some of your listeners will be in states where there still is a, a single retailer or a, um, a highly regulated retail price. But uh, in much of the country, we have deregulated retail, and um, uh, that those businesses uh, they perform a, a valuable ser- service um, in uh, buying electricity wholesale, taking the risks and managing those risks. But on but as well as though that service, they have uh, they have significant marketing costs in acquiring new customers. Um, that's not value you receive as a cu- as a customer, but they they you know, invest significantly to. to uh, acquire customers and hold them, uh, and um, uh, then of course they need they need their own profits um, as well. So the retail sector has increased uh, you know, a new layer of costs uh, in Australia that we didn't have maybe fifteen years ago. Mm. So let's talk about the reliability of energy supply around Australia. 
um, just before summer the last year, the federal government and others were forecasting a horrific summer with many blackouts expected to affect most of the eastern states. But in my mind, full marks to AEMO for managing that situation really well and we really dodged a bullet, didn't we? And how did we do it? Well, we 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 had a confected crisis. So uh, AEMO never um, never believed that we were... Uh, that we were going to have blackouts uh, this year. Um, much of what, much of the narrative about blackouts came from uh, from from our media. Unfortunately, it was from and, and also the federal government from all the media. Unfortunately, and and the federal government. Um, and uh, yeah, so anyone listening to the, to uh, politicians through the media in the last year would think that there are blackouts in South Australia every 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 day or two. Um, from a uh, energy supply perspective there wasn't there hasn't been a single inv- event not one event uh, in south australia of lost generation uh, or insufficient generation sure they've had problems with in, in the distribution network where fuses have blown or uh, power poles have been your cars have crashed into power poles or uh, storms have knocked down power lines so the poles gold plated section of the yeah system. and um we've there's and a, 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 a a great uh, bit of analysis came out a few days ago, showing showing the uh, that uh, issue um, reliability issues are about ninety five percent in the distribution network versus the generation and transmission network. So we've, we've actually we've got one of the highest reliability standards in the world. Um, our, our energy uh, is the, the legislated target is ninety nine point nine nine eight percent reliable, and uh, we have met that. Uh, we met that this summer, which was supposed to be a disaster, and we've met it uh, every year, I think, for the last decade. Um, so it's a 0.0002% um, failure and reliability rate allowed. Uh, I think you did one too many zeros there, but we're, we're, <laughs> oh, they're allowed to drop 0.002%. Um, now we uh, and, and and they don't they don't come close to that. What now? What what AMO said back in um, uh, back in September, they told the government. If we don't do a range of activities, that's really important, if we don't do a range of activities, then we might exceed that unreliability by an extra 0.00025%, which works out to be something like 11 seconds of lost power mm. a year. Um, but that big... Uh, if. <laughs> the big if was if we don't build the... Uh, if we don't put in any um, backup generation uh, in in south australia or, or victoria if we don't build the tesla mega battery over in hornsdale uh if we don't do the demand response programs so a whole bunch of things that were already contracted that we would do mm, fair enough aemo's assessment of nem reliability talking about reliability is bound by the national electricity rules to quantify something called the expected unserved energy this typically gets abbreviated as use, which means unserved energy, but the expected qualifier is very important. Can you explain a little bit more about this term? So un- unserved energy, there's two basic reliability metrics. One one's in the generation and, uh, and, and transmission sector, that's the un- unserved energy, and then there's a um, uh, measure called the SADI, uh, and there's a, um, another pair of it in the distribution Network. So these, these these two different numbers get reported frequently, and it's I think it's only a couple of weeks from now that the uh, Australian Energy Market Commission will will report more on these. But they're a measure of how much energy 
we can expect we should build the system for uh, an allowance to not serve. Now we could we could have uh, a more reliable system than ninety nine point nine nine eight percent if we wanted to, but to do so we have to pay more. Any any um I guess any engineer that's had to keep a machine going will tell you you can have more reliability, but you've got to pay for that. And we call that um, when when we pay more for marginal value, we call that gold plating. So South Australia has had an incredibly uh, reliable power system for the last year, um, and it could have more, uh, even more reliable, if we wanted to pay more. Simon, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Um, One of the really interesting things for me would be if you were able to tell our listeners the list of renewable projects that have started or have started or are starting around Australia, especially around the NEM? Yeah, so we... uh, We've at the moment in Australia we've got um, uh, committed uh, four and a half uh, gigawatts of uh, of solar and wind projects uh, that are joining joining the NEM. What's what's pretty exciting about that is uh, a very a significant amount of it is uh, is solar, and we've we've actually got very little solar that's not on people's rooftops. Um, we've we've got about seven um, seven giga, seven thousand megawatts mm-hmm. of solar on, on roof, rooftops. Only about three hundred and fifty megawatts sitting in fields at the moment. Um, so far, but that's going to change. So far, and that's changing. There's an, that there's another two thousand that's coming in uh, mm-hmm. this year, and about another one thousand that's that's on track. What's exciting in um, this year in in Australia is the the beginning of the construction of the Stockyard Hill wind farm, which is one of the cheapest uh, was the cheapest in Australia by a long way, and one of the cheapest wind farms globally to be built uh, at only fifty two dollars a megawatt hour. We thought when that first came out, people didn't believe the price; they thought it was uh, an anomaly. But I've I've since heard from from people in the industry that there are multiple projects in that low fifty dollars. As you've said, um, you. Uh, our politicians, if you listen to them, they indicate that South Australia is a basket case. It's not the case. Um, just very quickly, you're saying that, that South Australia has, if it was a country, it'd be had biggest penetration in the world, 59% of renewables. Yes, and and just the other week we saw the Premier coming up saying that uh, they've got a new target of 75%. We've crunched the numbers in at, at Melbourne University and, and found out that if they actually sit back and do very little, they're going to hit that anyway. Thanks so much for your time today, Simon. That's been really informative. People so, can find out more on the Lighter Footprints site. And yeah, the, the talk that Simon did is actually uploaded to Facebook Live. Um, if you search Lighter Footprints Melbourne, or as one word, um, you'll find a link to it there. And Simon's kindly made the slides available separately, and they'll shortly be up on the Lighter Footprints website. Um, also, I highly recommend Simon's um, uh, Twitter account uh, at Simon A Hack at Simon Anthony Hack H A C for Homes Homes are Court. He's one of the most entertaining and on the ball and active Twitter users that I follow, and I absolutely love it. Thanks, Simon. We've been speaking to Simon Holmes Accord about the optimistic future of renewables. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, go to bze.org.au and click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.